Let me ask you, how would you respond if the world really began to hate you for following Jesus? And I'm not talking about you know, a few individuals or a few angry pressure groups out there who clearly hate Christians, but you don't know them personally. I'm talking about, say, if, if the government started to try and silence the church or if your own family started rejecting you, if your friends at school just turned their backs on you, what would you do then? How would you respond? Maybe that's already a reality for some of you. In which case, how are you responding? And if you wouldn't currently consider yourself a Christian, would the possibility of hatred or persecution for following Jesus stop you from committing to him? Would that be too high a price to pay? These are some of the things that this passage has got me thinking about. Because while there are many things that might stop someone from following Jesus, perhaps some of his harder teachings and the call to give our lives to him and obey him in everything he commands. I think for me, the hardest thing actually, the thing that would be most likely to turn me back from following him, would be overt persecution. It would be that point at which I could no longer live a relatively quiet, peaceful life, getting on with following Jesus in my little corner without really getting too much hassle for it. I think you know, there would be a big temptation for me to go silent, not to talk about Jesus anymore. There would be a big temptation to compromise on some of the most offensive aspects of Jesus' teaching. And there would be much more temptation to comply with whatever oppressive rules the government decided to impose on us. I like having a quiet life and an easy ride. So that would be, for me, the biggest struggle I expect. So I very much needed to hear what Jesus says in this passage. I wonder what about you? How would you respond if that kind of hatred came? Because Jesus says it will happen. It will come in some way, shape, or form to every church in every place sooner or later. It's not equal in all places at all times, but it will come. Jesus isn't fear-mongering or sowing unnecessary division between the church and the world, because we've seen persecution every bit as fierce as what he talks about in this passage all through church history, and it is still happening today. Only this week I read about two Christians beheaded in Mozambique by Islamist extremists. And I read about, in Myanmar, the army shelling a refugee camp where one of the many ethnic minority groups who are mostly Christians were sheltering. And they're hated partly because they are Christians. And as the army attacked them, a father and a daughter were killed. And stories of death and kidnap and imprisonment and confiscation of property and loss of jobs and fines and threats are replicated all over the world, from China to Nigeria to El Salvador, on every continent. 
life is not getting easier for us in the UK as Christians either. You've probably noticed. So the church does face hatred and it will face hatred. And this is why Jesus gives his disciples a loving, a necessary, and a sober warning in this, this passage. And we're going to look at it from those three angles, a loving warning, a necessary warning, and a sober warning. Firstly, why is it a loving warning? Well, if we look at 16 verse 1, which I think frames these verses, Jesus tells us why he's saying all this. All these things I have told you so that you will not fall away. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to fall away. Simple. But why? Surely it's because he loves them. As he's repeated time and time again through these chapters, and what John sort of explicitly headlined for us at the beginning of chapter 13, verse 1, where he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he, Jesus, loved them to the end. All of what Jesus is saying in these chapters and what he does is ultimately born out of his love. He chose them. He wants them to bear fruit to the glory of the Father, as we saw last week in 15 verse 16. And these, these disciples were simultaneously given to him by the Father. And the Father doesn't want him to lose any of them. You'll see if you look back to chapter 6 verse 39. And, as we're going to see in three weeks' time, in seven, chapter 17 verse 24, he wants all of his disciples, including those like us, who have believed on the basis of the Apostles' testimony, he wants all of us to see and share in the glory that he had with God the Father before the world began. Jesus loves his disciples. He has the highest aspirations for them, and he is not willing to lose any of them. And that's why he warns them, and he warns us so that we don't think something has gone wrong when hatred comes, and so that we don't fall away. And if you do belong to Jesus, do you realize that you are that precious to him? Do you realize that you are so precious? He is unwilling to lose you. And do you see how this warning might play a part in preparing you to keep you from falling away so that he doesn't lose you. Imagine, um, imagine a professional cyclist preparing for the Tour de France, which is the world's most prestigious cycle race. It's over 2,000 miles, over 23 days, across the whole of France. But imagine you live here in Oxford, and the highest hill for miles around is Brill Hill, somewhere over that way. And it's about 645 feet high, or 184 meters, according to the map. Oxfordshire's relatively flat otherwise. What if you had never been to France, and you thought France was just like Oxfordshire? <laughs> you didn't know that there are going to be climbs well over 2,000 meters, or 9,000 feet. What are you going to do when you get there? When you start to fall behind your team, when 
you, you just crash out because you are so exhausted. You can't get to the top of the first mountain in the Alps, never mind the next 10 to come over the next several days. Some of us, I, I guess, might well stomp off in self-righteous indignation, sort of saying, no one told me it was going to be like this. They have no right to send up mountains, send us up mountains like this. I wasn't prepared. I wasn't ready. It's not fair. I'm going home. And can you see how the disciples might do the same with hatred and persecution? Particularly if, like me, you have been used to a relatively easy and comfortable life. What would you do if you weren't expecting things to get harder when you follow Jesus? You might well throw in the towel. And Jesus doesn't want to leave us in that position. He warns us because he loves us. His warning is part of how he will help us persevere if we take it seriously. So will we receive this warning in the spirit he means it? It's not there to scare us, it's there to prepare us because he loves us. And if you are considering following Jesus, but you wouldn't call yourself a Christian at the moment, can you see that Jesus is not trying to deceive you with what that will look like? He's very clear about the cost of following him. And you need to take that into account when you, you're deciding, am I, am I going to follow this guy or not? Are you willing to face hatred for him sooner or later? And can you see that he is worth it? That you have, you, you will gain something far more important in Jesus than what you will lose in the world. Now, if you can't see that, and if, if you're a believer and you still struggle to see that, stick with me because I hope that the next two sections will help us to see why it is worth it. So we have a loving warning. We also have a necessary warning in these verses. Jesus warns us because hatred and persecution are a necessary part of following him. Again, not to the same degree in every place and every time, but necessary at some level. Why is that? Well, as Jesus says in verse 18, it's because the world hated him. As John explained to us in chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, this is the verdict. Light, that is Jesus, has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So Jesus came into the world as the supreme revelation of God, as the light of truth about God, as the hope of eternal life with God. But the perfection of his goodness and his truthfulness and his righteousness expose the world's lack of these things. A bit like if you 
buy a new pair of white trainers and then you set it alongside your grubby, battered, tatty old pair and you suddenly see what a wreck they look in comparison. Unless the Holy Spirit makes us born again, we will see Jesus and his kingdom as a threat. A threat to our autonomy, to, to furtively get on with doing what we like, with no reference to God, with no accountability to him, hidden away in the darkness. And so we will resent Jesus as the one who exposes our evil deeds and who threatens us with accountability, with condemnation. And we will hate him for it. It's a bit like the self-righteous celebrity or politician who's caught having an affair or fiddling their taxes. And instead of fessing up and humbling themselves on TV and saying sorry, they throw a tantrum and start mouthing off about how we've got no right to judge them and interfere in their personal life. Apart from God's spirit, even the most religious-seeming individuals, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, will hate him because he exposes how they and we are not upright, virtuous, or enlightened as we would like to think we are. And if they hated Jesus for doing that, they will hate the disciples too. Now why is that? If Jesus is the cause of offense, why hate the disciples? Jesus is back in heaven now, so surely the cause of offense is gone, hasn't it? Well, not really. Jesus says in, in our chapter, in chapter 15, verses 26 to 27, when the advocate comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus might be back in heaven, but he is not finished with the world. He still wants people from every tribe and tongue and nation to be saved. As it says in John chapter 3, verse 17 to 18, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And that's why the Holy Spirit has come to continue testifying about Jesus, even though he's returned to heaven. And that's why he commands the disciples to testify with the Spirit. And that includes us directly, because we have to continue the work that the apostles left unfinished and generations since them have left unfinished in taking the news of Jesus to every people group on earth. It's the loving thing to do. Jesus wants them to be saved. But the uncomfortable side effect is that Jesus will continue to confront the world with its sin as he is proclaimed, as the word about him is testified to. And so many in the world will continue to hate him and us as the bearers of that message. But again, if, if they hate us, isn't that like shooting the messenger for being the bearer of bad news? Surely the problem is with Jesus, not with us. We're, you know, we're, we're not setting ourselves up above people. We're fellow sinners. But it's not that simple, 
If you look at verse 19, Jesus says that if we believe, we don't belong to the world anymore. So the world comes to look on. He, so he has chosen us out of the world. And so the world comes to look on us as strangers, like an invasive species, a, a threat to their security and way of life. It's a bit like how some people sadly look on immigration. It's rather like how we might view foreign spies within the British establishment. Or how I look on something like Japanese knotweed in my garden. It is something dangerous to be suspected and, if possible, eradicated. Because Jesus has chosen us, we are bound up with him. We are citizens in his kingdom, and we are children of his father. We are inseparable from him. And so we don't belong to the world anymore. And the world will see that only too clearly, and many will. So hatred is a necessary consequence of following Jesus, and he is right to warn us. So I want to try and draw out now a couple of implications of that warning. Firstly, that we can't duck out of all hatred and persecution or the possibility of death in some places if we want to stay faithful to Jesus. We can't duck out of it altogether. Verse 19 presents a pretty stark contrast. Either we belong to Jesus or we belong to the world. We can't belong to both at the same time. Yes, we remain in the world for a while. We keep living out our daily lives among people who don't know Jesus. But we don't belong here in the same way we used to like traveling abroad on a tourist visa. Yeah, you get to be there and enjoy things about being in that country, but you don't belong. You're not a citizen. And so we can't uphold Jesus' teaching and obey him whilst also pleasing the people around us by going along with all of their values and aspirations. Like Sometimes the values of our culture and the values of the church will happily overlap, because there is no culture that can totally suppress the truth about God. It is that deeply impressed upon our consciences. And sometimes that truth is a bit fresher in the memory in a post-Christian culture like ours. But there will always be significant and painful points of disagreement where we just look like bad people to the world around us. And so if we want to be faithful to Jesus, hatred is unavoidable. Especially because we're not greater than him. Do you see that in verse 20? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Now I find that hugely challenging because... <laughs> Like I said, I want to have an easy, quiet life. I want to stay on friendly terms with the world to a greater or lesser extent. But when I try to do that, I'm trying to make myself better than Jesus. As if I can somehow achieve something that the Son of God could not achieve. 
how, how dishonoring to Jesus is that? And who do I think I am, really, if I, if I think I can do that? What am I saying about his sacrificial love for me that gave everything for me if I think friendship with the world is more important than him? Now, none of that is to say that we, we cut all ties with the world and cancel our non-Christian friends. If we love them as Jesus does, we will want them to be saved. And so we've got to be sharing our lives and our testimony with them. And, and the possibility of hatred doesn't excuse us from sharing testimony either. And in any case, we should be encouraged because verse 20 is clear that some will obey Jesus through the teaching that he's passed on through his disciples, now written down for us in the Bible. Some will obey. We can be hopeful that many will believe. Not everyone will hate us. But we shouldn't be surprised when some do. We shouldn't be surprised if family members disown us. We shouldn't be surprised if governments want to silence us. We don't seek rejection, but we mustn't shrink from it if it comes. So Jesus is giving us the necessary warning. We will be hated by many, and we can't duck out of that altogether while still remaining faithful to him. But the second implication of this warning, kind of the flip side of that, I think is a real comfort. Again, in verse 19, if we are hated because we are following Jesus, and not because we're being obnoxious or overly judgmental or hypocritical, which is possible, that hatred is a comforting sign that we really do belong to, to Jesus. We are his. We are among those that the king of the universe calls friends in chapter 15, verse 14. Isn't that precious? And if we really do belong to Jesus, we also know God the Father himself. The world rejects Jesus because it doesn't know the Father in verse 21. But if we belong to him, we know the Father and we have eternal life with him. And chapter 17 says that life has already started. We have been chosen out of the world and caught up into the very life of God. Persecution will only last a few decades at most. But life with the loving, awesome, mighty creator of the universe will go on forever. Isn't that worth enduring a bit of hatred for? To fall away and settle for friendship with the world would be like, it would be like settling for a measly 100 gram bar of Cadbury Dairy Milk or whatever your favorite brand of chocolate is, when you could own the entire factory as the sole owner. Do we really want to settle for something as small and fickle as the world's love? Just think how quickly even the most popular celebrities or the most respected woke activists fall out of favor and get canceled. Think of the famous feminist Jermaine Greer or Peter Tatchell, the gay rights activist, who have both been no-platformed by various university student unions recently because they're no longer radical enough. 
Do we really want to pin our hopes on the love of a world like that? Isn't it a comfort to know that we are hated because we belong to the Eternal One who is love incarnate and whose love we will never stop discovering greater depths to in the world to come? Jesus' words are a loving warning. They are a necessary warning. Finally, they are a sober warning. His words in verses 22 to 25 especially are very sobering. To reject Jesus is to reject, as we've said already, the fullest and most perfect revelation of God the Father. And it's not just to reject God, but to reject him when he has come into the world in profound humility to offer mercy and peace. It would, to reject him when he's doing that would be a bit like the German generals spitting in the faces of the Allied negotiators when they were offering terms of peace in 1945 as the Allied armies were closing in on Berlin. This is the best offer for peace with God that we are going to get. The only other alternative is inescapable condemnation. And to reject it, Jesus says, is to be left without any pretense of an excuse for sin. Do you see that in verse 22? If I had not come into the world, sorry, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Now, Jesus is not saying that the only sin is rejecting him, and somehow we're sinless until and unless we encounter him. He's not saying that. If we go back to chapter 3 again, verse 18 is very clear. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. We are already sinners and thoroughly deserving of God's condemnation before ever we encounter Jesus. And so in 3 verse 36, John can write, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. The wrath was already there and deserved. But when we encounter Jesus, there is the possibility of that wrath being removed if we believe. It's as if the judgment is temporarily suspended while we make up our, our minds about him. And we have the opportunity to be treated as sinless. But if we reject him, that condemnation becomes fixed forever. It's like the criminal on death row in the US who has gone through all the appeal courts trying to overturn the guilty verdict, hasn't been able to do it, only to be offered a presidential pardon, but he rejects it because he hates the president. There is no other opportunity for acquittal left. That man is going to the electric chair or lethal injection or whatever it is. And if you're not a Christian, do you see what this means? However religious you might think you are, 
or not if you're an agnostic or atheist. Rejecting Jesus is rejecting God. And do you realize that if you continue to reject him, there will be no hope left. You will face judgment when Jesus returns. He says in chapter 5, he himself has been given all power of judgment. And the only thing that will be left will be condemnation away from him in the place of darkness and despair and torment that, that the Bible calls hell. If you don't follow Jesus, is, is that what you really want? For those of us who do believe, I wonder as well, can we see the implications of these verses if we fall away? If we, if we buckle in the face of hatred and persecution, if we disown Jesus and stop holding fast to his teaching, we will be like the fruitless branch he talks about in 15 verse 6. That doesn't remain in him, that doesn't bear fruit, that is picked up and thrown into the fire and burnt. Now, of course, we, we know forgiveness is possible if we have a temporary failure and collapse under pressure. That happens only three chapters later when Peter denies Jesus three times. And yet Jesus lovingly restores him in chapter 21. He restores him, commands him to go and feed his sheep. Peter is fully assured of his place in the kingdom. But if anyone persists on the path of compromise and rejecting Jesus altogether, sooner or later there is no turning back. Hebrews 10, 2 Peter chapter 2 are very clear on this. Jesus gives us a sober warning to keep us from falling away. But again, there is a comforting flip side to this, and that's where I want to finish. If we remain connected to Jesus, depending on him, with, with an earnest desire to, to obey him, to testify to him, however falteringly we do that, we have a wonderful assurance. We are treated as if we are totally free from guilt and the shame of sin by Jesus and by God the Father. The flip side of verses 22 to 24 is that we are not condemned. We, in effect, do have an excuse for our sin, if you like. That's not a very accurate way of putting it. But Jesus has taken it away. And even though we will continue to mess up every day, and so often we feel so discouraged about that, we can have assurance. Judgment has been removed. We are treated as precious and perfect even in the Father's sight because we are connected to Jesus as the true vine. And at the risk of stretching the vine image a bit from earlier in chapter 15, it's as if the bad grapes of our ongoing sin are hidden by the, the beautiful, luxurious, shiny leaves of Jesus' righteousness. And bit by bit, the, the sweet grapes of, of love, of faithfulness, of obedience will begin to displace the grapes of sin and faithlessness. 
That will happen as Jesus is transforming, healing, renewing life, pulses through us from the, the vine to the branches. Isn't that glorious? That the Father would look on you as so pure and perfect through Jesus. And isn't that worth enduring the bit of hatred for? Why don't we pray now that Jesus would enable us to endure? Lord Jesus, some people in this room know they have already endured hatred and persecution for your sake. Some of us have yet to experience that in any, any kind of big way close to home. But Lord, we pray, please would you give us courage not to shrink from it, whether it continues, whether it comes for the first time, whether, whether we are just in the, the position of deciding whether we're going to follow you at all. Help us, please, to see that belonging to you, being one of your own, being connected to the vine, being seen as pure and spotless by the Father, receiving your love for eternity is so much more precious than the fleeting love of this world. Please would you impress this upon our hearts. Please would you make us steadfast by your Spirit and grant that we would testify faithfully with our words, with our deeds, that you have come into the world not to condemn it, but to save everyone who believes. Amen.